0: Okay, we will begin the series of Sutta studies with the Magandya Sutta. This is the 75th Sutta in the Machima Nikaya, And this Sutta begins at a time when the Buddha was living in the Kuru country, near the town called Kamasadhamma. Those of you who are familiar with the suttas will know that the Buddha gave some of the most profound and important discourses in this area. According to scholars, this area will (coughs) coincide with the area of modern India near the city of Delhi. So you can see that the Buddha traveled quite a distance in order to give some of his discourses. In the Kuru country, the Buddha gave the Satipatthana Sutta and the Mahasatipatthana Sutta. And he gave the Mahanidana Sutta, the great discourse on causation. And I think in the Majjhima the Aninja Sapaya Sutta. So it seems that the people in this area were very intelligent and capable of understanding very deep Dhamma. And so the Buddha would always, whenever he would go to the country, he would give very profound discourses. And this sutta too, it's not addressed to a large group of people, but only to one inquirer, a wanderer named Magandya. But it's also an extremely deep and very powerful sutta, which is really, I think, if one reflects on it deeply, it's <laughs> capable of leading one just by itself all the ways to our Hasya, not to Sota Pan, not to Sautapati or Anagami, but all the ways to our Hasya. <laughs> and it seems, if we investigate the Sutta, we'll see that it's divided into two main portions, and each portion is directed at eliminating a particular type of craving for tanha. The first part of the sutta is directed at eliminating sensual craving, kama-tanha, craving for sense purpose. Then there takes place a certain transition point in the sutta, that we'll see. And then the second part of the sutta is concerned with eliminating Bhavatana, the craving for continued existence. Okay, so the sutta begins with the Buddha living alone. He's not accompanied by a sangha, by a community of monks. But he must have, according to the commentary, Every morning in the early dawn, the Buddha would enter into a special meditative attainment called the Maha Karuna Samapati. That is the meditation on great compassion. And he would extend his compassion all over the world in order to see if there are any special people that he could help then when he would emerge from this meditation on great compassion, he would open up his Buddha Chakra his Buddha vision, kind of super radar system <laughs> that a Buddha has, by which he could scan the communities of human beings and his environment, and see if there's anybody who especially needs his assistance. And when he sees such a person, particularly somebody whose mental faculties are very ripe and who just needs a little assistance to enter into the path of Dhamma, then the Buddha will go to that person and try to create an opportunity for introducing that person to the Dhamma. And when there's a very special case, then the Buddha will even leave behind the rest of the monks and he will just travel as a solitary wanderer and go to find that person that he wants to help. And so the commentary explains that in this case too, a few days earlier the Buddha had radiated his compassion over the world, then had scanned the community of people in the environment with his Buddha radar vision, and this wanderer named Magandya came into his view, and so the Buddha set out alone to find this wanderer Magandya and to create some kind of conditions for teaching. Apparently, this person Magandya had good roots which he had planted in earlier existences, but they were covered over by some superficial layer of deluded views and wrong understanding and so the Buddha had to first make contact with him, then begin a conversation in order to break up his deluded views. Okay, so when the Sutta opens the Buddha has been living in the fire chamber of a Brahman who belonged to the Bharadwaj clan? That was a prominent clan of Brahmins. And this Brahmin, he would have this chamber in order for making his sacrificial fire. And so the Buddha, when he would be wandering through the country, he must have come and approached this Brahmin and asked him for permission to live in his fire chamber for a few days. Okay, so then when the sutta opens in the morning, the Buddha dresses and goes into the town for alms. And then after his meal, he returns, he must have returned to his dwelling. And then he went to a grove in order to spend the day in meditation. And now the commentary explains that each day when the Buddha was living there, He would sleep on a straw mat and when he would wake up in the morning he would roll up the mat and put it in a corner. But the Buddha wanted to create some opportunity for a discussion to take place between the Wanderer Magandya and the Brahmin. And so on that day he must have known with his foresight what kind of situation to create, what kind of circumstances to set up in order to create conditions for that conversation to take place. So on this day he did not roll up his sleeping mat but left it on the ground. And so this wanderer Gandhya was walking through the countryside and he came to the fire chamber of this brahmin. <coughs> And when he came there, then he saw that spread of grass on the floor of the fire chamber. And something must have given him the impression that it's the kind of bedding that an ascetic would use. So he said to the Brahman, for whom has the spread of grass been prepared? This looks like a an ascetic's bed. And then the, the Brahman explains that this is the bed, the bedding which has been prepared for this monk Gotama, and he gives the report about the Buddha's reputation. And now this Brahmin, this wanderer Magandya, had heard about this this ascetic that they called the Blessed One, the Buddha, and. He heard some reports about the Buddha's teaching, and what he heard about the Buddha's teaching was contradictory to his own views. And so when he heard the Brahmin point out to him, when the Brahmin pointed out to him that that bedding belonged to the recluse Gotama, then the wanderer got angry and he said (laughs) that it is a unlucky sight that we've seen, inauspicious sight that we've seen the bed of this recluse botanum, who's a destroyer of growth. Actually, in English, this term doesn't have any particular connotations or nuance to it, but the Pali word that he uses, it's a kind of very, very cutting, denigrating, derogatory term, it's... um, the word is which means something like a nihilist or somebody with a completely negative attitude to life. <coughs> and so when the Brahmin hears this, then he cautions Magandhi and says, Be careful what you say, Magandhi. be careful what you say. Many learned nobles, kshatriyas, Brahmins, and ascetics, have full confidence in Master Gotama, and have been disciplined by him, trained by him in the true way, in the noble dhamma And so to emphasize his negative evaluation of the Buddha, the wanderer says, even if we saw that Master Gotama to his face, would tell him to his face that the ascetic Gautama is a uhino, a destroyer of growth. And he says, why is that? Because that is recorded in our scriptures. And I don't quite understand the, how this can be recorded in their scriptures, but this is the word of the text, that somehow the text the scriptures on which he must have been relying, that had come down in his tradition, had described the monk, Gotama, as a negativist, a nihilist, one who was a destroyer of growth. And then the Brahmin would like to, I think he must have been curious to get the Buddha's own assessment of this statement, this label. And so he asked the Wanderer, if you have no objection, may I tell this to Master Gotama? And Wanderer told him, just, you can tell him if you wish, have no qualms at all about doing so. Okay, meanwhile, the Buddha was sitting in meditation in the grove, and he had, must have become aware in his mind, That the wanderer Magandya had arrived at the fire chamber, and so he directed his divasota, his divine ear, his supersonic element of hearing, in order to his super sensitive element of hearing, in order to follow this discussion between the Brahmin and the wanderer. And then, when it was evening then the Buddha emerged from this meditation and he went to the fire, Brahman's fire chamber, sat down. And then the Brahman, when he saw the Buddha return, he went to him, very eager to report to him about the discussion that he had with this wanderer. But even before the Brahman could bring the subject up, the Buddha asked him, Did you have any conversation with the wanderer Magendya about this spread of grass? And when he heard this, the Brahmin was struck with wonder and amazement, and even to the extent that his hair was standing on end, because he would have (laughs) he realized that the only ones who were present when the discussion took place were himself and the wanderer, and he must have thought it very unlikely that the wanderer would have met the Buddha. And so he would have realized that the Buddha had some kind of superhuman power of hearing. And so he was astonished and shocked and he said, that's exactly what we wanted to tell you about. And yet you already know about it. Okay, just as they were holding this conversation, the wanderer Magandhiya returned. He must have known that the Buddha would come back to the dwelling in the evening. And so he came back there, he went to the Blessed One and exchanged greetings with him. Then, even before Mangandhya could present his charge to the Buddha about his being a destroyer of growth, the Buddha anticipates him by giving him the reason why he uses this expression in in relation to to the Buddha. He says, Agandhya, the eye delights in forms, takes delight in forms, rejoices in forms. That has been tamed by the Tathagata, guarded, protected, and restrained, and he teaches the Dhamma for its restraint. Was it rep- with reference to this? That you said the monk Gotama is a destroyer of growth, and the wanderer Magandya confirms. It. Then the Buddha continues: each of the sense faculties—the ear delights in sounds, the nose delights in odors, the tongue delights in flavors, the body delights in tangibles, the mind delights in mental objects mental phenomena takes delight in mind objects, rejoices in mind objects. That has been tamed by the Tathagata, guarded, protected, and restrained, and he teaches the Dhamma for its restraint. Was it with reference to this that you said the Mangotama is a destroyer of growth? And then the Brahman confirms this and says that why is this? Because that is reported in our scriptures, in our texts. So it turns out that the reason why the wanderer and the tradition on which he relies describe the Buddha as a destroyer of growth is because he teaches restraint and mastery over the six sense faculties. It seems that in this tradition, that this wanderer was following. He and his teachers believed that the senses are to be indulged. They might have been a kind of sect of heathenists who believe that the highest goal of humankind is to enjoy sense pleasures in a great, as great a variety as possible. That For them, growth and development means to enjoy a great variety of sights, to enjoy many different sounds, to enjoy beautiful and fragrant scents, to enjoy many different tasty foods, to enjoy variety of touch sensations, and to um, experience a wide variety of thoughts and reflections and fantasies and imagination, so for them, the aim of life is to indulge in the enjoyment of sense pleasures and mental pleasures, aesthetic pleasures, with as great a variety of And so, since they would have heard that the Buddha teaches the restraint of the senses, control over the senses, and the elimination of desire for sensual pleasures. For them, the Buddha would be a destroyer of growth, a nihilist, a negativist. It seems that their view is very much like that of the contemporary materialists, especially the sensualists, the consumer society, who say that we should see, hear, enjoy as much as possible. Everything should always be different. New styles every six, maybe three or four times a year. New fashions, fall fashions, spring fashions, summer fashions, winter fashions, new perfumes, try different tastes. (laughs) Uh, And so holding this type of view, Magandhya was very fiercely opposed to the Buddha's teaching, And yet he would have had good roots and strong connections with the Dhamma from earlier existences, which had just been covered over through his recent contacts and his present existence. It would have been covered over by a coating of deluded views. And so the Buddha with his skillful explanations and augmentation is now going to break through this these scale, this coding of the Buddha views in order to develop the good roots of Macandre. So, So now the Buddha takes first the case of somebody who is, in an earlier part of his life, is a sensualist. Somebody who is formerly enjoying himself with forms cognizable by the eye, wished for, desired, agreeable, and likeable, provocative of lust. Then, on a later occasion, he understands, as they really are, the origin and disappearance the arising and passing away, the gratification, danger, and escape in the case of form. By doing so, he might abandon this craving for forms. He removes this fever of craving for forms, And he dwells without this thirst, or longing, this very vicious thirst, incessant thirst, for enjoyment of forms, and has a mind which is inwardly at peace. So if somebody reaches such a high degree of restrained purity and self-control, to the extent that he's at perfect peace within himself, then what can you do? Can you go out and encourage him to go out and enjoy himself? Having seen the unsatisfactoriness and danger in forms, should he go out and try to enjoy himself and indulge the sense of sight? When Magandhi is asked this question, what would you say to him? Then he's left speechless. He has nothing to say. Simile with sounds, smells and so on. These are the five chords of sensual pleasure. In each case, one understands the origin and disappearance. This shows up the actual, actually the characteristic of impermanence. And one understands the gratification, danger and escape. These are actually key terms for understanding. To understand anything by way of these five categories is actually to understand it by way of the Four Noble Truths. The origin and disappearance, this indicates the characteristic of impermanence, since when one knows these sense pleasures are subject to arising and disappearance, passing away, then one understands that they are impermanent the other three characteristics point to specific truths among the four noble truths the gratification is the enjoyment the pleasure the delight in the sense object and so when a sense object is enjoyable and pleasant then it arouses craving which is the second noble and that craving is the origin or cause of suffering. And if one just sees the gratification in the sense pleasure, then one will be attached to it and try to exploit it in order to obtain more enjoyment from it, more pleasure. But when one investigates more deeply, then one penetrates beneath the surface and one sees the adhinava, which means the danger, the drawback, the pitfalls, the say the unsatisfactoriness or misery concealed beneath the enjoyment. And in the sutta, as the sutta goes on, the Buddha will expose more and more stockly the adinava or danger in sense pleasures. And because the dangers in the sense pleasures bring about suffering, the term danger points to the first noble truth, the noble truth of suffering. Then when one sees and understands the danger, then one looks for an escape, a way to release from that danger. And that the final escape is the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering, and the means of escape, the means of release is the fourth truth, the Noble Eightfold Path. So in this way, within these three terms, we have the four noble truths implied. Okay, so now the Buddha speaks about the the gratification, danger and escape in the case of these five boards of sense pleasures, and in each case, when he asks Magandhya, what would you say to a person who abandons this craving for the sense pleasures and is dwelling inwardly at peace, Magandhya has nothing to say. Okay, now the Buddha is going to speak in terms of his own, from his own experience, about his own background. And he refers to the time when he was living as a member of the Sakyan, of the aristocracy, a member of the royal family, in Kapilavatu. He did not um, from a poor, powerless family, but from a very wealthy, powerful family in the state of Kapalavati. And so he says, Formerly when I was living the home life, I enjoyed myself, provided and endowed with the five chords of sensual pleasure. And he mentions them. And he says, I had three palaces, one for the rainy season, one for the winter, and one for the summer. It seems each palace was constructed in such a way that it would provide ideal living conditions for the different seasons. Perhaps the winter palace was built in such a way that it would keep out the cold and could retain the heat. While the palace for the summer would be constructed of a lighter material so that it would um, allow cool breezes to come through and would not retain them. And then during the rainy season, he says, I would spend the four months enjoying myself with musicians who were all female, and I did not even go down to the lower palace. We would just be living in the most utmost sensual luxury. But then, on a later occasion, he must be now referring to the time when he reached maturity and started to reflect on his situation in the palace, to reflect on this life of enjoyment, of luxury, of power. Usually this period is depicted in legend by the story about the Buddha, the Bodhisattva not having any previous acquaintance or knowledge of old age, sickness and death. Then he became curious about the life outside the palace and wanted to leave and just to see the surrounding countryside. And his father tried to discourage him and persuade him to remain happy in the palace. But he went on the journey outside the palace with his charioteer. And first he would see an old man, then a sick man, then a dead man, and then an ascetic. According to the legend, this was the first acquaintance that he ever had with the facts of old age, illness, and death. I think we could understand this legend as just a way of depicting an inward psychological experience of reaching a stage of deep reflection on these hard realities of life, and of seeing through this life of enjoyment and easy pleasure to understand that. Our life is eventually heading towards old age, sickness, and death. And so, when he understood this origin, disappearance, gratification, danger, and escape in the case in the case of sensual pleasures, then I abandoned craving for sense pleasures. I removed fever for them, and I dwell without thirst, with a mind inwardly at peace. Very beautiful way in which he depicts his own situation. And now he compares himself with other beings using very stark, hard-hitting language. He says, I see other beings, other people who are not free from lust for sensual pleasures, being devoured, eaten up by this craving for sensual pleasures, burning with. Fever, the fever of sensual desire, desire for sensual pleasure, indulging in sensual pleasures. And I do not envy these people, nor do I seek to find any delight in sensual pleasures. So this gives a very, very powerful powerful impression. The way the Buddha contrasts himself free from this fever, free from thirst, inwardly at peace, and seeing those who are still burning with this fever of sense pleasures, devoured by their desires, not able to experience peace. And he says, the reason why I do not have any envy for them or any desire to indulge myself and return to the enjoyment of sense pleasures is because there is a delight, some pleasure, some bliss apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states which surpasses even divine bliss, even the happiness of the devas, of the gods, cannot match this delight and pleasure of seclusion, to which the Buddha has access. And according to the commentary, what the Buddha is referring to here by this delight, apart from sensual pleasures, is the, what we call it in Pali the Arahattapalasamattati. This is the meditative attainment of the fruit of our function And so this is a special meditative attainment which the Buddha or any Arhan can enter in which he cuts off all the experience of the senses and even all the experiences of the super celestial spheres, of the super sensual spheres. And he, the mind becomes immersed Directly in the bliss of Nirvana, right here. And for a Buddha or an Arhan, any Arhan, when he wants to enter the state, he just sits and makes a determination to enter into the special meditative absorption for a certain period of time, whether ten minutes, half an hour, an hour whole days, even seven days, and then the mind will just cut off all of its normal processes and just becomes completely immersed in the bliss of nirvana, the direct experience of nirvana. And then when one emerges from this and returns to normal consciousness, then there's just no inclination at all towards any enjoyment of anything in the world. Okay, now the Buddha, in order to reinforce this point, he's got, he descends to a lower level, a simpler level, and he uses an analogy. He says, suppose, by Gandhi there's a householder for a householder's son who is rich with great wealth and property, provided and endowed with the five cords of sensual pleasure. And so he can enjoy himself with any forms he wants, enjoy any sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, and so on. And he observes virtuous conduct of body, speech, and mind. So that when he dies, after death, he is reborn in a happy realm of existence in the Tavatings of Devaloka, that is the gods of the 33. And he's reborn in this Nandana grove, that's like the playground of the Tavatings of gods. And he's surrounded by a group of celestial nymphs and he can enjoy himself with them, provided with all the five hordes of celestial, of divine sensual pleasures. Okay, so these, they say that the sense pleasures in the heavenly world are much more refined, much subtler, much more enjoyable and delightful than the pleasures of human beings. so now suppose that this former householder who's been reborn as a Deva should be able to come back down to examine the human world and he would see some human being enjoying himself with the five chords of sensual pleasure, of human sensual pleasure would that newborn Deva, that young Deva, surrounded by his group of celestial nymphs in the nandana grove enjoying the five celestial sense pleasures would he have any envy for this human being enjoying the five human sense pleasures or would he want to return come back to the human world in order to enjoy human sense pleasures maybe this question (laughs) doesn't have much meaning for us who haven't seen the Delights of the Deva world. But anyway, according to the text, these delights of the Deva world are inconceivably more pleasurable and beautiful and lovely and enchanting and charming and ravishing <laughs> and enticing and titillating <laughs> the pleasures of the human world. And so, ordinarily, people in all religions, they want to be reborn in heaven because they have some intuition of another realm in which there is a superior grade of sensual pleasures than can be found in the human Here in the human realm, we reflect as bad sounds, traffic, <laughs> of dogs barking, loudspeakers blaring. Ugly sights, one sees garbage, bad smells of excrement, garbage, waste, and so on. Sometimes the food is bad tasting. There's rough, tactile sensations, grating, abrasive, painful. But in the divine celestial world, everything one sees is lovely and beautiful. There is just the most enchanting music which will make the music of Mozart or Bach sound just like grating <laughs> grating sounds and just always the flowers are emitting beautiful scents and the food must be just so delicious that one cannot imagine any any dishes we've had on the earth look more tasty than the celestial food all the touch sensations are just like fine silk. And so these and I guess the group of nymphs will be very beautiful and lovely. And so ordinarily a human being who's reborn in the Deva world doesn't want to come back to the human world. And they when they consider that a human rebirth is imminent, they become terrified and shocked because they don't want to leave their Celestial pleasures. Okay, so now the Buddha says, when he asks that question to Magandhya, Magandhya says that this householder who's been reborn as a deva would not want to return to the human sense pleasures because the heavenly sense pleasures are more excellent and sublime than the human sense pleasures. So then the Buddha, in paragraph 12, he repeats that same statement that he made earlier. So here the Buddha is comparing himself when he was a prince, enjoying the five chords of sense pleasures. That is like the householder, the wealthy householder who could enjoy the five chords of human sense pleasures. And now that he's become an enlightened one and has access to this bliss of nirvana, he's in a way, he's comparing himself to this householder who's been reborn as a deva and wouldn't want to return to the human world. But this doesn't mean that <laughs> the bliss of nirvana and the pleasures, the, the, the bliss of the heavenly sense pleasures are on the same level for actually the levels are completely different. But just to make this, to draw this analogy in terms which will be more intelligible to Madandiya, who has no idea at this point about what Nirvana will be like, the Buddha uses this analogy. Okay, now the Buddha, after leading, you can see that the Buddha has used a very, very subtle, gradual, step-by-step approach in instructing Mahgandhya. He begins by appealing to Mahgandhya's sense of pleasure and making him see that the Buddha is not opposed to pleasure and rejecting sense pleasures because he's a negativist who just has this bitter, sour attitude towards existence and towards pleasure. But he's showing Magandya that he has access to another type of pleasure, a superior type of pleasure which is utterly beyond the pleasures of the senses. And so he's appealed in this portion of the discourse, the first portion, to Magandhi's interest in pleasure, interest in enjoyment. And he's shown him that there is a pleasure above and beyond sense pleasures, which is much more enjoyable, which gives inner peace, inner freedom from dependence on sense pleasures, and compared to this peace and happiness, the enjoyment of sense pleasures is actually a state of being devoured, or a state of burning, of being consumed. Okay. Now, with paragraph 13, the Buddha, now that he's softened up Maganda's mind, he's going to hit very hard at his <laughs> deluded views by exposing to him, in a very stark and realistic way, the adinava, the dangers or the misery in sensual presence, using one of the most, i say one of the most powerful similes in the whole Canon. suppose, Magandia, there was a leper. The Pali used some word for kind of skin disease, it's just a guess that this is leprosy. With sores and blisters covering his limbs. And within these sores and blisters there are worms who are eating his flesh. And the man is scratching the scabs off the opening of his wounds with his nails and cauterizing his body over a burning charcoal pit. This is the way he can alleviate the pain, is by heating his limbs up over the charcoal pit. Okay, then his friends and companions His kinsmen and relatives bring a physician to treat him. The physician would make, prepare some medicine for him, and by means of that medicine, the man would be cured of his leprosy, and he would become well and happy, independent, master of himself, able to go where he liked. Then he might see another leper, again with sores and blisters on his limbs, devoured by the worms, also he's scratching his wounds and cauterizing the body over the charcoal product. Now would this man who has been cured of the leprosy would he feel any envy for the man who's still a leper, who's burning his limbs over the charcoal pit and taking these palliatives to alleviate his pain temporarily? And Magandhya says, no. And even the man who's cured doesn't even envy the leper who's using the medicine for the use of his medicine. Since he's completely cured, he doesn't even have to use the medicine anymore. And so the Buddha repeats his original statement, that when he was enjoying the sense pleasures, living in the palace, enjoying all the sense pleasures, at that time he was really like a leper who was constantly covered with covered by the sores and blisters, always scratching his wounds and having to burn his limbs over the fire in order to get some relief from the pain. But after he's discovered the path to enlightenment and followed that path and healed himself of the craving in the mind, that he's utterly free from this thirst and craving for sense pleasures, now he's like this man who has been cured of the leprosy and is free, well and happy, able to go where he likes. And just as that man who's now cured and healthy will see, might see, other lepers scratching themselves and burning their limbs, so the Buddha sees other people who are not awakened, not enlightened, Indulging in sense pleasures, trying to increase their sensual enjoyment, always seeking variety and intensity of pleasure, and yet he doesn't envy them, doesn't feel any longing to return to the enjoyment of sense Okay, and now the Buddha is going to introduce in the next passage still another aspect to the simile of the leper which I think this is now, <laughs> will bring... He's, he's going to use the simile of the leper to expose from his perspective the true nature of sense presence. He says, suppose, Magandhya, there was a leper with sores and blisters... Okay, again, everything is repeated. Then his friends and companions bring the physician, the physician cures the man so that he's free, well and happy, able to go where he likes. And then two strong men seize him by both arms and drag him towards a burning charcoal pit. What do you think? Wouldn't that man twist his body this way and that, in order to get free from those two men who are dragging him?" And then Magandhya says, Yes, Master Gautama. Why is that? Because that fire is indeed painful to touch, hot and scorching. And then the Buddha asks, He says, Is it only now that the fire is painful to touch? hot and scorching, or was it also painful, hot and scorching, earlier, at the time when the man was still a leper?" And Magandhi says, Now that fire is painful to the touch, hot and scorching, and also earlier it was painful to the touch, hot and scorching. But when that man was a leper, with the sores and blisters, his faculties were impaired. And thus, even though the fire was actually painful to touch, he mistakenly perceived it as pleasant. Actually, it's hard to believe that Magandhya actually would have said this rather than the compilers of the Sutta because the words are exactly what the Buddha would have wanted in order to develop his point. But the point is that all along the fire, this charcoal fire, is painful and scorching. But when a person has the disease of leprosy, then the sense faculties are not able to perceive the heat as it really is, as painful and scorching. But because of the leprosy, they feel the heat as pleasant, as enjoyment. It gives some relief from the itching and intensity of the pain. And so the leper always wants to heat up the limbs over this burning pipe. But once he's cured of the disease, and the sense faculties are functioning normally, then, if he puts the arm over the fire, he'll experience it as painful. Draw the that. And if somebody, these two strong men, grab him and say, come now, earlier you found this pleasant, let's give you another treat, <laughs> by exposing you to that hot, burning fire. Come, let's go along. Then the man is frightened and thinks, no, I don't want to experience that. That's very painful. And he tries to wiggle out of it and to escape. But all along the fire has been hot and burning. But as Magundia says, it was because his faculties were impaired that he mistakenly perceived it as pleasant. And the word that Magandhi, the expression that Meghendra uses, the Pali expression, you have the book. Can you look up just note? No. Yeah, and maybe I could find it. No, not. I don't want the sheet, I want the book. Viparita <clears throat> Sanya which actually connects with the Buddha's doctrine of what's called the vipalasa, the distortion or perversion of perception. And so now the Buddha picks up on this and he says, So too, Mahgandiya. In the past, sensual pleasures were painful, painful to touch, hot and scorching. In the future, sensual pleasures will be painful to touch, hot and scorching. And now, at present, sensual pleasures are painful to touch, hot and scorching. But these beings who are not free from lust for sensual pleasures, who are devoured by craving for sensual pleasures, who burn with fever for sensual pleasures, have faculties that are impaired. And thus, even though sensual pleasures are actually painful to touch, they mistakenly perceive them as pleasant. So he's comparing ordinary people, people who have not reached any of these stages of awakening, what we call the Uninstructed worldlings who are devoting their lives to the quest, for sense pleasures. These are like, people are like the leper who enjoys burning the limbs over the charcoal fire. So the sense pleasures are actually on fire, so to speak. The Buddha says that the world is burning with the fires of greed, hatred and delusion. It's actually not really the objects themselves that are on fire, but it's the mind which is on fire, with the greed, the attachment, the craving, for the sense pleasures. And so, because of that greed, that craving, that attachment, the mind is always seeking enjoyment in the sense pleasures, and the sense pleasures just fuel the fire of greed and attachment. And so the sense pleasures are always burning the mind, so to speak. And yet, because of the screen of ignorance and wrong views, there takes place the distortion of perception, perversion of perception, so that the beings who are enjoying the sense pleasures experience them and understand them to be pleasant. But if they could see the sense pleasures with the eyes of an awakened one, they would be like the man who's been cured of the leprosy. Now he will not experience the burning fire as pleasant, but as painful. And so the one who's reached some awakening will not look on the indul- indulgence in the sense pleasures as a source of pleasure, but we'll see that it is actually a breeding ground of suffering, that the sense pleasures are actually burning with these fires of greed, hatred, and ignorance. Okay, maybe we will stop here.